You're listening to the Digital State of Mind podcast with your host, Jessica Hawks, where we get honest about all things entrepreneurship, balancing life and business, and navigating the world in a digital age. Welcome back to the Digital State of Mind podcast, season three. This is a good one. We have a lot of really good guests. Today we have someone who I've known literally since almost day one of my business, Lo Galloway. We did our, we did our course together, so we both learned how to start a business together, and we became so close throughout that. I'm like embarrassed to say that you're the only person I kept in contact with <laughs> from my round of, of the course we went through. So we've talked for a long time, and both our businesses has, have grown so much and I feel like you are like the pivot queen because you've grown into so many different things in your business so I'm super excited to have you here I'm gonna have you just kind of start things off by telling us your story how you got to where you are now what you were doing before and also how your business has evolved we just realized it's been two years since we started our business so a lot has happened so I'm gonna have you just walk us through that I know yeah for sure it's crazy that we just established that it's been a full two years for anybody that started a business during COVID two years literally was like a snapshot like it's crazy and actually kind of scary that two years Mm -hmm. just flew by us but to your point it's so cool to just see how our businesses and how we've evolved so much as individuals over the last two years so I obviously started my business as a virtual assistant. I had no intention of becoming a virtual assistant to be completely transparent. I had recently COVID hit. I had recently been laid off from my corporate job as a fashion buyer and product developer. And I was essentially like just trying to figure out what my next steps look like. I somehow stumbled across a virtual assistant post by Aaron Mort. And I had no idea what a VA was. But after some mega creeping, I found Mm -hmm. myself (laughs) enrolled in her program two weeks later. And I was like, what the heck am I doing? No idea. But let's kind of just like dive in and see where this takes us. So like Jess said, we went through that program together, which was so cool. It gave us the foundations to kind of navigate the online space. I started my business actually as a general VA because I'm super multi-passionate. I do like to consider myself as like a jack of all trades kind of gal. And I really wanted to like narrow down my specialty through experience. So I would say after like a solid four months, I ended up pivoting into becoming a tech VA. When I was a general VA, because I came from I thought I wanted to work with creatives. That was sort of my niche that I was going after. But being a general VA, I got exposed to the online coaching industry. And that's really where I kind of fell in love with supporting coaches of all different industries or niches, mindset coaches, business coaches, spiritual coaches, you name it. So I narrowed down 
became a tech VA. And from there, I really just naturally found myself taking on OBM responsibilities. So in a few months, that's kind of where I found myself. I loved playing that like strategic partnership with my clients and making higher level decisions with them and guiding them on like that level of business as opposed to just like checking off the tasks in the boxes throughout the day. So I still actually am an online business manager. I don't promote it as much because I have my two retainer course are clients that I, I solely kind of focus there. And as being an OBM, I kind of noticed a common trend across all my clients and that was that they were literally so burnt out because they were in this vicious cycle of trading their time for their money. So I really saw like this area of opportunity to take their knowledge, their passion, their expertise and put it into well-rounded digital courses so that they could ultimately reach an, a wider audience at once without adding more calls, time, and energy to their schedule. So my mission like quickly became to help these coaches, consultants, educators regain their time freedom, have greater impact on their community, and hit those income months with more ease through digital courses and online learning experiences. So here I am today, a course creator, a system strategist. I solely focus helping business owners develop binge-worthy transformational learning experiences for entrepreneurs that essentially value quality and impact. So my journey was super organic and like just kind of led me to where I was at, which is really cool to kind of hear myself say that because I'm like, I had no idea how organic it really was. Yeah, it's crazy how much you can pivot in in the online space and also how quickly that happens, how quickly your business can evolve. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that a lot of people struggle with that same thing. I think you and I both coming into the online space, you had been more in the creative industry. So you thought, okay, well, I that's naturally what I would work in. And yeah. I was coming out of the medical field. So I was like, oh, well, I'd probably work with like health coaches or fitness coaches. And we both flipped completely. And I ended up working in the creative space. You ended up working in the coaching space. But whenever mm-hmm. you first started, you were more general. And I think that a lot of people really struggle with that, really struggle with keeping things open in the beginning, because there's kind of this catch 22 of, uh, you know, you're keeping things more general, so you can figure out or keeping your niche more general, so you can figure out who you actually love working with. But there's the struggle of when you are keeping it more general, oftentimes, it's really difficult to find like hone in on your marketing and your content and your engagement. So what do you feel like were the things that really helped you when you were more of a general virtual assistant, still attract and find clients that you really loved working with? Yeah, that's a great question. I like to focus a lot more on like personality values, beliefs, attributes. And that's kind of what I spoke a lot about when I was a general VA, because you definitely call in a wide variety of different individuals. And some just aren't in alignment with who you are as an individual. So I think if you can pinpoint like those values and beliefs and personality qualities that matter to you, um, and what you want from a client, you can speak about those things. Like for me, I like more of like a laid back kind of vibe. Like I'm not super like, even as an OBM, like I'm strategic, but I, I still like there to be room for like you to have like intuitive business decisions while still having structure. So being able to pinpoint what matters to you and being able to communicate that through your messaging so that you're calling in the right people, regardless of what industry they're in. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's a big, that's so important for VAs. And when you're first starting, it's really hard to incorporate your personality because oh yeah, there's so many facets of it. Like even, you know, talking about things that you're doing in your day or fashion or whatever mm-hmm. it is, it feels almost like embarrassing when you're first starting because you're like, why would anyone care about this? But that is like, that can make or break you getting clients in the beginning, especially if you're keeping things more general. So Mm -hmm. I totally Totally. agree with you. Um, As far as what you've kind of narrowed down into now, as far as course creation and kind of doing audits with people who already have established courses, Mm -hmm. I think that's really cool because I don't really see that that often. And it's almost something that you've kind of like created from the experience that you had. So can you walk through kind of what that process looks like with people? Because I think that it's, it's hard for people to know what opportunities are there for their business to evolve into into the future. Yeah, totally. And I just want to start by saying like, you can have like, course creation was an avenue that sort of filled this like, passion that I had in business while still allowing me to be an online business manager, a system Mm -hmm. strategist in the back end. So I think that if you're a multi passionate person, you can absolutely do a lot of different things in your business and kind of diversify the way that you're doing things every single day. So in terms of course creation and auditing, I kind of have my signature process down pat when it comes to building out a course. I have my signature course architect framework and that's a three-part framework that kind of focuses on like I'm huge on the analysis phase. So first I look at like and we can go more detail um, later as well but I look at three different components of the analysis. So there's like a gap analysis. And that's for you to understand, like, where is that cognitive gap in the industry? And like, how can you close it? So essentially, like, where are your students currently? And what is their desired state? And how can we craft a learning experience that closes that gap and gets them closer to that desired goal transformation that they're looking for? And once you get really clear on that, it's much easier to actually create like your course blueprint, right? So you can't just like go into a course willy nilly, you got to have some like data and some analysis similar to when we started our VA business, we had to do that market research to be able Mm -hmm. to figure out what we were actually going to provide and if it was of need in the industry, because I think that's where Mm -hmm. I see it go wrong. A lot of times people create courses, um, they flop, they don't get the outcome and and Mm -hmm. the goals that they desire. And because they missed that analysis piece that a lot of people overlook. So that's something that I'm really kind of heavy in on my framework, because I've seen how just that small tweak in your approach in the first initial build out phase can make or break the entire rest of like the course project so I do the analysis um, I get clear on that and then there's like a wants and a needs analysis a lot of times we think we know what our ideal student avatar wants but is it what like is it actually what they need you know what I mean Um, so it's figuring out the difference between those two and then finding like that micro solution that you can solve for them. A lot of times people try to make their courses, their programs, a kitchen sink, meaning you're trying to solve 101 different issues. And that's just not something that benefits our students at the end of the day we got to hone in on what's that one transformation even if there's multiple along the way at the end of the day there's one final destination that they're going to get to so what is that um 
So then from there, we move into the design and the development phase. So I use a backwards design approach. So I actually identify the end goal of the course. Once we know what that end goal is, I work backwards from there to be to be able to determine the actual individual action steps that we need to take. Your action steps essentially become your milestones, which are your course modules. Um, and then you break that down further into, okay, to achieve this milestone, what are the one to five actual action steps that they need to take to achieve that? So I kind of work backwards there. Once that's kind of developed, we have our curriculum, our framework, our outline, the supplementary resources sort of identified we can then move into the design and the tech setup. So I kind of break it down into analysis, develop, design, implement. That's kind of a high level overview of my process. Now, it looks different for an audit because obviously when you have an audit, you've pre-created that. So for my audit, I break it down into like four main sections. So I come in and I look at it from a structure and flow perspective. So how is the content set up? Does it make sense for the learner? Is it supporting the end transformation? Is there content maybe included in the course that is not relevant to the outcome? A lot of times, I'm guilty of this too. We just think by jam-packing our courses, we're benefiting our students, but it does do them a disservice because then we just overwhelm them. It's that analysis paralysis where you're like, oh my gosh, yeah. there's so much information what the heck do I do? So I first look at the structure and flow, then I work at look at the instruction and the engagement. So how is the educator showing up? Um, is there things that we can tweak in there? What does the engagement look like? How are we promoting engagement within the course? And then thirdly is the assessments and the accountability piece of it. So how are we actually measuring our students success? What tools and supplementary resources are we giving them to actually implement these key learnings? How do we know that they're absorbing the information, understanding it and applying it to their life to their business? And then the fourth piece would be the implementation, the action step. So once we've taught them our concepts and what we want to cover, how are they implementing it? What are their action steps? What does that game plan look like for them? That is so cool. I love that you offer this and you're going to be helping me as well in my yes. course that I have. And it's so what you said about jam packing it is so true. I feel like that's if anyone's who's listening if anyone is listening who is a coach, or even if you have been a student in a course, you've probably experienced that as well. And it, I think that a lot of that stems, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of that stems from trying to reconcile being so far into your business and educating while remembering what it felt like to be a beginner. And I remember from the beginning of my business, I would try so hard to write down and take notes of the things that I was struggling with because I had an idea that in the future I would want to teach. And mm -hmm. it's so hard to put yourself back in that mentality of being a beginner and the what did I actually need to know or what was I really struggling with and what parts of these courses that I've taken were not useful to me at all because I think that we've probably both bought so many courses and then they've just sat in our email and we've <laughs> never gone through them <laughs> we, because we, it's so it's so hard. Yeah, we actually bought a course, I think, together that we never opened. Mm -hmm. Like, yep. honestly, yep. I think that I've never, I don't even know how to find that course. <laughs> <laughs> 
We were like, yeah, that seems like a good idea. And we also, it was like so irrelevant to where we were in our business at the time. Like we could not Yeah. Well, that's the thing. And I think you hit the nail on the head. Like as a, as the course creator, as the instructor, as the educator, you're so involved, like you're so in it that sometimes it's hard to like remove yourself and you can't see the forest for the trees, right? Like it's a matter of taking a step back and it's like, your your students they just need that first step like sometimes we're so focused on that macro transformation that we lose sight of like what's that first step that they actually need to take because from there you can evolve and grow with them but it's better to just like bite size like give them bite size solutions and concepts that they can slowly implement as opposed to downloading them 101 things like I just did a course audit for an amazing program out there. And what, what what ended up happening was any resource that she created, she just kept adding to her program. So her resource section had 101 done for you templates, like from wow. the course creator standpoint, we're like, Oh, my God, the more templates we're giving them the better, but then you're right. giving them the templates, they don't even know how to utilize them in the best practices right. to implement them, right? So I think it's, mm-hmm. to me, like less is more, honestly, the way you approach your digital learning experience, your online courses, less is more. And sometimes we try to overcompensate because we maybe don't feel confident in the transformation or the delivery or the content, but it's dialing it back and meeting our students at that point that they're currently at. Right. And I, and that's, I think that that's kind of where things are starting to shift now is that people like bite-sized learning so much more than something that, gives them everything in the world that they can learn about this one subject. I'm sure that a lot of that has to come down to the fact that we are now so exposed to platforms like TikTok and whatever that have decreased our attention span. So like for me, the thought of sitting down and watching like an hour, 45 minute hour long module, I'm like, I don't think I can do that. (laughs) Physically, mentally, don't think I can do it. Nobody can. And like we're in a space right now where we have people that are, maybe still working their corporate job and building their business on the side. So how can we make our knowledge, passion, expertise more accessible to those people so that when they're on the train coming home from work, they're able to watch it on their phone or when they're putting their kids down to bed, they're able to take 15, 20 minutes and watch a module in a lesson and start to implement those things. So it's like, it is, it's getting in tune with like how, how society is today, all the digital distractions that we have at our fingertips, people's busy lives, commitments, how can we create a learning experience that still is accessible to those people? Because that's a majority of, of the population. Yeah, I think that a lot of our learner or our listeners are also probably people who are very new to the online space. And I think mm-hmm. that for them, it's really, really scary to, I mean, well, well, we've experienced this as well. It can be really scary to invest in a program, even if mm-hmm. you can kind of see the far, the future of what that yep. can bring you. It can be really difficult, especially if you're not in a position where you have the accessible funds or you can just throw money at something. So can you kind of speak to that and what the like, is there a way that you or like a hierarchy of how pricing goes within courses? And can can you kind of explain the value of that to listeners and how much work goes into it? Because I, I think that none of us realize until we create a course how much work goes into it. Like it is mentally, physically draining. 
Absolutely. There is so much that goes into building a course. I'm in this, like, I obviously do done for you course builds for clients and there are three month projects. And even then that's a tight timeline. There is so much that goes into building a course. And I think price point, I mean, if you're new to the online space, maybe a course isn't your first step. Maybe it's an intensive um, mm-hmm. or something that's a lower ticket option where you get to experience what it would be like working with that mentor, educator, instructor in a lower ticket environment um, before making the commitment to actually go into a full course. Now, there's different types of courses out there, and obviously the prices reflect them accordingly. If you're going into a course like DCA, that has the community that has the co-coaches and the coaches that has the pre-recorded content um, and resources and tools that's going to be a higher price point but if you're looking Mm -hmm. for something that you can just do self-paced that you don't have that added layer of accountability community support you're looking at something a little bit lower so I mean Pricing is hard to touch on only because there is an element of competitor analysis and market research that you also want to do there as well, because you want to think about from the course creator perspective, like the time and energy, yes, that you're putting into it, but also what's the value of the transformation, right? Like by the end of the course, the program, the coaching container, what is that value of transformation? Is that person able to increase their revenue by 10k plus a month? Is that person able to multiply their leads by X amount. So it's being able to quantify like what the value of the transformation is coupled with obviously the time and energy and what is going on in the market. Where are other people positioning it? So it is a little bit of like deep digging analysis and figuring out that a lot of times I have clients that will just like slap a price on it. And I'm like, but where did you get that from? Right? What's included in the course? Is there, um, additional layers of support is there done for you templates or is there just learning aid resources so there's a lot of different things that you want to take into consideration um i learned like a general rule of thumb is like if i can't pay for it in full i don't do it at that time and that's Mm -hmm. because I am a huge believer of payment plans, but I've been burned so many times of making unintentional business decisions or investments because I thought I needed to do it because I saw else in the online space doing it, investing and not actually showing up and putting in the work, right? Right. Another thing is like a lot of times people think by investing into courses or coaches that it's a magic pill and that over all of these amazing things are going to happen. But they have to they have to put in the work. We can lead right. them to water. We can't force them to drink the water, right? Right, right. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's it's interesting too, like the evolution of courses as well. I've I we've done DCA six times now, and I think I've re-recorded it probably three or four, at least three wow. or four. And it's there's so much when you're not only when you're live in the course and you're kind of seeing what people are struggling with and what maybe needs to be touched on or spoken about differently, but also there's some courses where you can just, if you're learning about a program or if you're learning about something, it can be something that's very, um, that lasts for a really long time. But when you're teaching, you know, beginners, 
it's different because the online space changes so quickly that oftentimes your course has to adapt to that, which is, is interesting because I was definitely not preparing for that when I, yeah. <laughs> when I did it the first few times, I didn't realize how much the online space was going to shift while we were in the middle of the program. And from there I had to kind of literally course correct and yeah. make sure that I was giving information that was relevant. Um, is there anything that, you know, coaches or people, anyone who creates courses can kind of do to maybe offset that or make their course information valuable for a longer time? Yeah, I mean, I'm so happy you touched on that only because I think that there's like this stigma in the online space that like you can just create a course once and collect passive sales in your right. state for the rest of your life. And right. unfortunately, that's just like, that's not what goes into it. You do have to be in tune with what is going on, what the students are saying, where there's common fall off points, where there's common FAQs and questions coming in. Um, so there is a level of maintenance that you absolutely need to do. I think the best way to it's hard to, because I think that you always have to be updating your course. I would say yearly, at least taking right. a look at the content and you're going to, you're going to have to make some updates, but in order to be more aware of those updates, I love to incorporate feedback loops into coaching containers, courses, whatever that is. And you can set feedback loops at the end of any lesson or module if you wanted to. But basically that is giving your students a opportunity to express any challenges or setbacks that they have or any areas that they need more clarity on so that you as the course creator can customize the learning strategy and figure out how you can integrate more things to support them at those specific touch points. Because when you start to actually analyze the data, you'll notice that most students will get stuck at the same spots, right? right. And yeah. that's, a, that's a good indicator to you as a course creator of, okay, why are they getting stuck here? What do I need to clarify? What do I need to simplify? Is there some additional support that I can implement into this specific segment to better support them? So feedback loops is something that I would 100% recommend to anybody. They can be literally a three question quiz of what did you find confusing or um, was this easy, easily digestible? Do you understand the concept? What are you challenged with? It could be a three question, multiple choice. It doesn't have to be anything crazy. And from there, you can then extract what you need to make future improvements and iterations. Right. Yeah, I love that. I think that's so smart. And something that we are going to be incorporating into DCA in the future is anonymous feedback forms yes. as well. That's, mm -hmm. that's, I think that that's like, I'm so happy that we had like the light bulb moment with that, because I think that especially if you maybe have a higher volume, there's a lot of courses that maybe incorporate a live aspect. So maybe there's only 10 people or something like that. But I think anytime you have a higher volume, it can be really difficult for people to feel comfortable speaking up about things that they're struggling with. And I also think that it, on a personal level, incorporates a really safe space for people because if there is something going on behind the scenes, which a lot of times is completely out of your control to an mm -hmm. level as the coach, 
that way they can feel comfortable coming forth and saying something and not feeling like, oh, this person's going to be mad at me or whatever, because there's so much that you can control as the coach or the teacher, but there's also so much that you can't because there are people on the other side of that who are talking to each other, who are at different levels. And that can be really difficult to kind of have a grasp on as the educator. Yeah, I love that. That goes back to like one of my inclusivity practices of like how to make your learning environment more inclusive is like anonymous feedback, um, anonymous anything, honestly, even like, I know we push like show up on camera, all of those, but if they want to be anonymous, that's okay. It's kind of giving them the opportunity to cultivate that space, safe space. And that safe space looks different for everybody. Some people just aren't to your point, willing to openly give feedback with their name attached to it. So I really love that. Yeah. I think that they also feel, and we, I mean, I experience this whenever, obviously if you sign up for a course with someone, you admire the person and you want to develop a relationship with them. And it can be really tricky once you start getting, giving feedback to not feel like, oh, this teacher is not going to like me anymore if I give feedback that is maybe not in line with what they were hoping I would give. So I think Mm -hmm. that's a really good way to resolve that too. Absolutely. I agree. And with, with any courses or any coaches that people are maybe interested in working with, what would you say are maybe green flags and red flags when you're interested in signing up for a program or a course or working with a coach? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I feel like I've like subconsciously made like a mini checklist that I go through when I'm in the consideration phase. So first and foremost, I always look, do my values and beliefs actually align with this coach and educator? As an example, if a course or a coach is going to tell me I need to show up on socials five days a week, multiple times a day, for me personally, that just doesn't align with how I want to operate my business. So therefore, they wouldn't be the best fit for me. So I always start from that value and belief standpoint. And then I look at what does their messaging look like, right? Is it super clear what the transformation is, what the outcome is, or is it super fluffy and sort of hard to understand what you're actually gaining from it? Because here's the thing. I think that there's a lot of buzzwords that float around in yeah. the online space. And if yep. a coach or a course is 10K months, <laughs> 10K months, quantum leap, seven figures. Yes, what oh my God. Mean? What does it literally, mean? I see TikTok videos about that and someone's like, I just quantum leaped and did this. And I'm like, what? what do you mean you just called like what is that like literally that is a red flag to me if you're telling me I'm gonna quantum leap to seven figures what does that mean like I need to know the exact steps action steps that I'm going to take and I need to know how you're going to support me in getting there so I think it's really important to be in tune with like those buzzwords and what their messaging looks like the clearer the messaging the clearer the transformation the clearer the outcome chances are this coach has a proven or course has a proven framework that can get you the results that you want, right? And then I always look at like, how do they measure your progress or success? And I think this is often overlooked, but I think it is important for you to know, like, how are you going to be held accountable? What happens if you fall off track or you don't move in the intended pace? And that's going to happen because we're human. And ultimately, what if I'm not receiving the success and the transformation that this course or coach um, is promising? So how are they measuring me, my progress, my success? I think that's really important to me. 
I think this is like a no brainer. Have they even achieved what you're looking to achieve, right? When you're making an investment, you want to make sure that they themselves have actually achieved the desired result that you want to achieve because there's so many people out there creating programs and coaching containers when they haven't even successfully done it themselves. And I think that's a huge red flag. So knowing that they have achieved it and not being afraid to ask them about their journey. Like for me, I will be like, what was it like when you were in my position and how did you get from where I am to where you're at now? Like I really like to know their story and what they went through, what challenges they faced. And I think it's totally okay to ask. Like when I made my first investment into um, our program that we were in, I literally stalked the testimonial highlights and then I directly reached out to some of the people that did testimonials and I asked them about their experience and I had real life conversations with them to feel confident in actually doing it. And that is okay. So if you're that type of buyer that needs that validation that this coach or course is promising X, is this actually true? Ask it, do your deep digging, do your due diligence before you make the investment. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think we've touched on this on the podcast before, but it's so, I think that what I, I really feel like I, for being so deep in the coaching industry, I'm a little bit out of touch in the sense that I don't follow and interact with a ton of other coaches, but I have seen a lot of experiences of people kind of just saying information that they've learned from someone else. And I think that what people don't really maybe understand from the outside looking in is that as a coach, it's impossible for you to experience every single thing that your students may experience. So you have to have such a deep understanding of the industry and of what you're teaching so that you can take the information you're given or the experience you're being given from your student. And even if you haven't directly experienced it, understand how to coach them through that or help them work through whatever they're experiencing. And I think that's where a lot of blocks come with people who maybe haven't achieved what they're teaching people to do, because then it's like, well, I don't really know what to even tell this person because I don't have that understanding of the industry. A hundred percent. I think that's so important because even for me, when after I graduated my first program, I was looking for a mentor and I kept gravitating to mentors that weren't done for you service providers. They were always Mm -hmm. coaches and consultants. I was a done for you service provider. Therefore, they weren't able to accurately give me the right strategies and tactics to grow and scale a done for you based business because they were never there. They went right from wherever they were to coach and consultant. So there was right. that huge gap between us. And that was a huge aha moment for me was like, okay, I'm seeking out people that haven't even achieved what I'm looking to achieve in my business. So I think mm-hmm. that it's so important to just be really aware of that. Yeah, I think that's probably where a lot of the... I've. <laughs> really been trying to understand why people think that you know the coaching industry and MLMs are so correlated and I think that's a big key of it is that loop of coaches teaching coaches to coach to coach to coach yeah it's it's so different from the people who are really creating great courses and you know are great coaches because there's so many of them out there but there is that little corner of the industry where that loop starts happening and then it makes it really difficult for any actual transformation to happen because most of the money is just going into other coaches 
A hundred percent. And like, I'm all for investing. I think that you absolutely need to invest, but I think there's periods of time where it's like, it's okay if you're not investing in a coach or a course for you to like figure out and get your own feet on the ground. Because for me, I hopped from coach to course to coach to course. And what ended up finding is like, I just wasn't implementing any of the things. And then I was beating myself up because I would have these amazing conversations with these coaches and mentors, but I wasn't even implementing what we talked about. And it was like this vicious cycle of like, take my money. I'm not going to actually implement the steps. And I was like, all right, I had to give myself a hot period where it was like, I'm not investing until like, I get really clear on like, what exactly my business needs at this point? And do I have the energetic capacity to actually take what they're giving me and run with it? Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's, funny because you kind of start to feel guilty if you don't have a coach or if you're not currently investing in something. I haven't had a coach in over a year, at least, if not a year plus. And I've I think that it's difficult once you reach a level in your business because sometimes you have gotten to this point where you have scaled your business so much that it's really difficult to find someone who is doing more than you in that capacity that you want to kind of emulate. So mm-hmm. I, what I've kind of learned during that time is that where my investing needs to go is more so in refining my business as it already is before I start to scale beyond that because and this this can happen when you're first starting too. a lot of us whenever we're beginning as service providers or virtual assistants or whatever it is we take on so much I remember there was a point with both you and I where we would voice message each other and we were like I'm dying like literally 80 hour work weeks it was wild yeah and you take on so much and you don't realize that like you can crash and burn so easily if you don't course correct that and like let yourself level out and I think that can happen when your business is scaled and you're like oh I've got it and then you are like oh I don't got it Absolutely. I think there's foundational levels at every single level that you hit in your business. Obviously, like there's a foundation that you want to set up when you first get into business. But when you hit that 5k month, there's that new foundation that you have to lay. So it's constantly looking at that foundation first before seeking what are the missing pieces. And then we're in a space where there's so much going on that shiny object syndrome is a real thing. Like, um, feeling pressured that you have to make a business investment or do x y and z because you saw somebody else being really successful with it it's really truly is like putting your blinders up and really getting to the root of like how do I want my business to unfold what do the next three to five years look like what does success even mean to me and really being able to define that because that looks different for everybody like I'm at a stage in my business where success to me looks like taking a back seat so that I can have more of a work-life balance a year ago that wasn't what success was to me and you're going to keep going through different evolutions of what success means to you so just being in tune with that as a business owner and then making intentional investments based off of you and like nobody else right yeah it's it is really hard to not 
replicate what you see other people doing. And I think that's kind of where the 10K month trope comes into play is some people don't really care about that. Like they hear it so much that they're like, oh, that's the ultimate goal. But some people are miserable making 10K a month. Exactly. A hundred percent. Like I got to a place where I thought that the next level for me was to scale to an OBM agency. And I did that and I hated my life. And I literally was like, I've got to burn this thing to the ground because being an agency owner just wasn't in alignment with who I am as an individual. It's a whole other layer of responsibilities, communication between team and client, overseeing, delegating, you name it. Like we had a conversation about this a couple of weeks ago, like even growing your team, team members are amazing. You need a team, you need team members and expertise, but for the person who's the owner of the business, having a team necessarily doesn't make their life easier. It actually can add a whole other layer of responsibility, of stress, all of the things. So that's why it's so important to define what success means to you. I don't think I would ever get to the point where I had a team the size I had a year and a half ago. Yeah, it really it it is interesting because having a team helps you in so many ways in like the tactical day to day activities. And I love being able to like, be doing something or like having lunch with my friends and be able to like have someone else helping me and kind of, you know, acting as me in my business. But on the other hand of that, the mental load that comes with that is heavy. It is so terrifying. I don't think a lot of people talk about this, but it is terrifying to know Mm -hmm. this person is relying on me to be able to pay their bills, to feed their family. And I am also taking on the responsibility of knowing how to be a good leader and a good, you know, CEO and a good delegator. And those things can add up really quickly. Totally. And for somebody like you, that happened so quickly, like you were there, nobody can be prepared for that, right? Right, right. Really, you you can't be prepared for that. So it it really is like one foot in front of the other taking those baby steps and just kind of figuring that out for yourself. Um, I agree. Can you kind of talk through the different types of education that there are in the online space? And from a student perspective, or someone signing up for one of those types of education, what how to know kind of what type of education is right for you? Yeah, totally. So from a student perspective, I kind of break it down into like three main categories. So I I classify the first one as like asynchronous online learning. So this is typically known as like self pace in our world. So courses aren't taking place in a real time. Students are provided pre-recorded content assignments to kind of go through at their own pace. Interaction usually kind of takes place between like community chats, Facebook groups, Slack, member hubs, discussion boards, whatever. Um, And there's typically no live elements in this type of online learning. Now, asynchronous online learning environments are effective for students that have time constraints, busy schedules, um, and don't have a lot of like real time to dedicate to it, or they don't need that extra layer of accountability and support. So that is for the person. I would honestly say like, even me, like when I first started self-paced courses just didn't serve me because I needed that accountability and that support. Even to this day, self-paced courses just don't serve me. I really need live environments, peer Mm -hmm. support, instructor support, all of those. So if you're the type of person that is doing multiple things, you don't have a 
a lot of time, this could be good for you, but also take into consideration like how you actually learn and absorb information. Because if you need accountability, I wouldn't do asynchronous online learning. Now, the yeah. opposite of asynchronous is obviously synchronous learning. And that's real time, right? So that's where the educator, that's where the students, they're all interacting with the online content and community simultaneously. So in our space, group programs, masterminds, master classes, those types of things. I love synchronous learning because it really empowers our students to participate in the course in real time. So this is really for the student that like needs that community, needs that accountability to get the end result that they need. And then the third would be the hybrid. So this is a combination of synchronous and asynchronous learning. So obviously you have your self-paced element where they get access to pre-recorded content to do on their own time. But then there's usually a weekly or bi-weekly group sessions, individual sessions, guest experts, a huge focus on community here. And this is for the learner that really likes to have the option to move at their own pace, but have that extra layer of accountability and support to lean on their instructor and their community for those added benefits. So from a student perspective, that's kind of how I break it down in my mind is asynchronous, synchronous, and then the hybrid. Yeah, I'm totally with you on needing accountability. It's, well, clearly we both are the same. Yeah. <laughs> have so many courses we haven't opened. Um, yeah. I wanted to go back to something that you were talking about earlier about kind of looking at what other people are doing and, and wanting to replicate that. And something that I've learned so much in my business, and I would especially say like within the past six months to a year, is that you always know deep down what the right decision for you is. I remember like one time when I was in New York, I went into the Gucci store and uh, I was like, you know, oh, this would be so cool to have this. And you see other people like having these purses or these really nice things. And at the end of the day, I was like, do I even really want this? Like, it's cool, but do I actually want this? And But we see so many people kind of not trusting other people that are teaching them to make money or who are, you know, maybe wealthy. We sometimes don't trust that if we don't see it from the Mm -hmm. outside. And I feel like that was like a small but like pivotal moment for me in realizing like, I don't even want this. And I think that that is very similar to in your business, because like you were saying, you thought that the next step was having an OBM agency. And then Mm -hmm. you're like, I don't think that I even want that layer of responsibility. And I've kind of had those moments recently myself. Um, Can you kind of talk about how you started to kind of cultivate trusting yourself to make those decisions? Because I think especially in the beginning, it's really hard not to immediately jump from program to program and invest in even multiple programs at one time. Yeah, absolutely. It took honestly, full transparency, it took me a long time to get to a point where like, I was able to truly trust myself and figure out what was best for me. And I Mm -hmm. honestly still think it's a it's a learning curve. And it's like a constant battle that you always have to like check yourself, right? So I think that you need to know what your intentions are. And you need to be really clear on like your vision outside of like what you're seeing everybody else do. So like, there's a lot of mindful work that goes into it. There's a lot of um, intuition in knowing how to um, 
know, knowing how to like accept the nudges that your body or the universe is giving you and kind of being in tune with that. Like for me, like I feel it in my stomach and that sounds yeah. cliche and cheesy, but like when I know something's right for me, like I get those butterflies in my stomach. I feel that. And like before I always used to just disregard those feelings, but now I know that's yeah. like a nudge from the universe being like, this is the right thing for you or this isn't the right thing for you. So I think it just like a lot of being in tune with yourself, your mind, your body to be able to build that trust and know that, yes, this mentor is the right person for me or yes, this course is the right person or right thing for me at this point in my business. So I always like map it out. I like to do an exercise where I kind of just like brain dump my vision and that's everything from like what going back to like what does success mean to me how many hours do I want to be working Mm -hmm. who are the types of people that I want to be working and just getting like really clear on those things as like a foundational standpoint so that I know okay when I get shiny object syndrome or when I see my friend investing in x y and z I go back to that intention list and I'm like is this in alignment with me yes or no and it that's the first thing like you don't think about it if it's a yes it's a yes if it's a no it's a no so Mm -hmm. I think that it's just a working progress of really getting to know deep down like what are those things that speak to you as an individual um so that's kind of how I do it but again it is something that I'm still learning every single day um because it's really hard to not feel pull and gravitate towards things that everybody else are doing in their business but I think it's the awareness piece. Like once you, when you find yourself in that moment, like just ask yourself, like, okay, take a step back, go back to my intention list. Does this make sense for me? Yes or no. I think when you bring the awareness to it, that's that first step in like the change and that transformation. Yeah. I don't know if this is like, this could be total BS, but I learned this thing. (laughs) I have no idea where I learned this, but um, I think that if you like aren't used to trusting or like recognizing those feelings in your body, it can be really difficult to decipher what that is. But I don't, like I said, I don't remember where I learned this, but there's this thing where you like stand up and then you say yes and you lean forward and you say no and you lean backwards so that you kind of have those triggers of what is what. And I've done this so many times and literally every single time that I've done it, it has led me to what I feel like was the best decision, but you do that and then you stand upright and ask yourself a question and you will feel your body like physically pulling you one way or the other. It is so weird. I don't know how it works. I'm sure it's something, you know, subconsciously, but I have no idea what the science behind that is. There could be no science behind it. It's weird because it works. I feel like it's like whenever you flip a coin, people are like, flip a coin and when it's in the air, you'll know the answer. I feel like it's similar to that. So I love that. I'm going (laughs) to try that. I've even heard uh, my sister's big into this. I think it's like the pendant thing where like you look at a pendant and you ask a question and it will like tell you like, or it will like swing and go in a circle and that means a certain thing. I've done that a few times. So I definitely, honestly, I believe in all of those things and if it feels good for you and if it gives you that peace of mind and that comfort, then roll with it. Yeah, I that they also do that and supposedly this is like an old wives tale, but if you take a piece of your hair and tie it to a ring 
and like hold it over someone's palm. You, I've done this with like every single one of my friends or people that I know that have had kids. And it will, I think it's like, it'll swing vertically if it's a boy and it'll swing in a circle if it's a girl. And it will, if you do it multiple times, it'll also do like the order in which they were born. And I've done it with my friend who has three kids and it was like spot on. It is the weirdest thing. I have no idea how that works. I know it's wild, but I'm a huge fan of all of those things. I know, me too. It's so fun. That's so fun. Um, So I wanted to also ask you, there's also a lot of people who obviously eventually end up making the transition from being a service provider to then being an educator of some sorts, whether that's full-time or whether it's Mm part-time. But when you are kind of doing that, what is the best way to make that transition? Or kind of what are some, I guess, what are some qualities of being a good digital educator or things you need to have done before you do make that transition? Because there are some people who just don't like coaching or don't want to coach or kind of do it and then find out that it's just not right for them. Yeah, I think that's a great question. So I'll answer the first one first. So what it takes to be a good digital educator, some of the qualities that I like to see. So first of all, I think that there's no like toolkit or boxes that you absolutely have to check in order to transition from being like a done for you service provider, a service provider to becoming a digital educator. But I think holistically, good educators are empathetic, they have patience, that cheerleader energy. But most importantly, they're student centric, right? They actually care about the meaningful solution and transformation that they're providing, instead of looking at potential clients like dollar signs, So I think that there's a couple like key components of what makes a good digital educator. I think the first one is being able to set like a clear learning path. So really understanding your student avatar and the different entry points of people coming into your containers, because everybody comes in with a different level of knowledge, right? But having a clear roadmap for all of them, regardless of where they're at. To me, a good like education container allows students to kind of embark individual pathways of learning based off of their level of mastery. So really understanding your student avatar, their entry points, and how you can set up a roadmap that gets them to success, whatever avenue that they're coming into. I think also, this is a big one, is being able to empower but not enable your students. And this is something that I honestly learned as I became a coach um, for OSP was I was so quick when students would ask questions for me to just give them the answers. Um, And I quickly realized that I was actually enabling my students and you really need to empower them. So don't overcompensate on accountability. Don't give them all the answers. At the end of the day, you're giving your students the tools and resources, but they need to be willing to put in the work. So you need to support them in doing it on their own, even when it feels really hard, constantly reminding them to be resourceful, that they have the answers with inside them, holding them to their commitments. There's that fine line between empowering and enabling. And as a good educator, you want to empower. Enabling at the end of the day is going to do them a disservice because when they leave you or graduate from your container, your course, they have to know how to do it on their own. You're not going to be in their back pocket all the time. Um, I think this one's also really important is being aware of like the cognitive load. And this goes back to 
overloading our courses and so much yeah. information, so many resources, so many activities, you name it. So it's really knowing how to break down your information so that it's digestible and actionable, knowing what assessments, activities, touch points you can inter interject and where because too much stimulation and too many activities, resources, content become overwhelming for our learner, then they get crippled with information, and then they don't move forward. And then the satisfaction rate isn't what they had hoped. So going back to like, the cognitive load and knowing that like, less is more, you know, so that is something that I'm huge on and something that I'm constantly learning and helping my clients implement in their business. Because I think as educators, we always want to over deliver, we always want to give them more and more and more. And that doesn't make us a bad person. But we really need to kind of put our student hat on and be like, okay, what does this actually do for our student? Does this content does this resource does this whatever actually help them get closer to their goal? And if the answer is no, just leave it out, because it's not worth it. Um, and then understanding the different learning styles and how to cater to them. I think that main at like adults have three main learning styles the first one being a visual learner that's self-explanatory they learn best by seeing the information then there's auditory learners so they learn best from hearing or listening and then there's kinesthetic learning and this is the huge i think missing link in a lot of courses in online programs that i see is kinesthetic is the actual practice of applying and implementing the key learnings through physical activities, not physical activities, but activities, assessments, etc. So just knowing that so many people learn in different ways and having it having your container or your course touch on all of them so that everybody is benefiting from it. So I would say those are like the key things of really being a good digital educator. Now, when we talk about, because you had asked moving from service provider to online educator, I think there's a few like key steps that you can take here. So I always encourage my clients to start with a micro solution that you can solve through digital learning. Going back to, you know, we talked about it earlier. Sometimes we focus so much on the macro solution that we forget that our clients aren't even there yet, right? They really just need that first step. And then we can evolve from there. And that's really how you have like a strategic learning journey. So like, if you're a nutritionist, instead of creating a course or a program about all things nutrition, dial it down and maybe just focus on nutrition for gut health or nutrition for hormone balancing, right? Like a micro solution that introduces them to it and then you can continue to evolve it from there so once you know your micro solution I always challenge my clients to identify and master their process and their framework at the end of the day people want to know that you have a proven process to achieve their desired results and your framework should be a step-by-step -step game plan that's really easy to digest and implement and this is going to help you so much as the course creator and the digital educator to hone in on your messaging and ultimately call in aligned clients because when our outcome in our framework is so fluffy and big you start to get people that aren't even aligned with it and therefore 
you don't get the engagement that you want. You don't get the satisfaction that you want. You don't get the completion rates that you want. So honing in on your process will really help you get crystal clear on your messaging and help with the right people enrolling into the program. And then I think it's important to determine like, what do you want the experience to be like? And this goes back to like, not having to cultivate and curate your program, how everybody else is doing it, right? Like, what does your dream experience look like? What elements help you showcase your passion and your expertise in a way that feels really good for you? Is there community elements? How involved do you want to be in it or not involved do you want to be in it? So really getting to the root of like, what does your dream experience look like and creating it from that sensation? Because if Q&A calls don't feel good for you, don't do Q&A calls. What is something else that we can implement that gives them a level of support that actually serves you as the educator as well? And then you can really ease into the learning. Like I would tell my clients that are making that transition Maybe you don't just start with, you know, a group coaching program. Maybe let's start through a live masterclass or a three to five day challenge so we can warm up and tease our audience and give them like a little appetizer of what it's like to work with you. Once you have that masterclass that can, or that challenge, you have this container to then funnel people into what I would call like a beta round for your course or your coaching container. You don't have to use the word beta if you don't want to. But essentially what that means is it's the first time of you running something. And this allows you to get real time feedback um, and see where the gaps are to see if you need to make improvements and iterations before relaunching it. So I kind of start with the micro solution, identify my framework and process, what is the experience that I want to look like. And then I kind of start slowly with a small digital learning through masterclass or challenge and then funneling into like a beta round. So that's kind of the steps that I would take if you're looking to transition. I love that. You're just full of good info. <laughs> Thank you. Are there uh, this is a just a fun question and then we'll wrap it up, but are there any like courses or kind of topics that you really haven't seen covered but you would love to see covered in the the courses coaching world? Um, I'm trying to think, I think, well, not to toot my own horn, but I'm doing a program right now, because I think a lot of people talk about creating courses. Yeah. Um, but I think, and creating courses, getting passive sales, launching your courses. But I think that a lot of people don't talk about actually moving past the outline in the framework stage, because I notice right. even with my clients that are six and seven figure business owners that have proven methods and frameworks, they still don't know how to actually take their knowledge and their passion, their expertise and structure it into a well-rounded learning experience. So I think more stuff about like what it actually takes to be a good digital educator. How do you actually cultivate a good learning experience? That's something that I am working on right now. But in terms of like our space, I would love to see more e-commerce stuff. There's not yeah. a lot about e-commerce. I'm in a phase of my business where I'm looking to dabble into e-commerce and I can't find anything anywhere. Yeah. So if there's any listeners that can 
hit me up on Instagram and give me some suggestions. I'd be more than open to hearing those because I think that's a huge missing piece. Um, but also talking more about like inclusivity, like how, mm. especially in coaching containers, like how can you have more of an inclusive experience? How can you be more accessible? Um, taking in different learning styles and just like all of those things, just inclusivity in general. Yeah, I agree with both of those. I would also love to see, it's interesting because we have such a like, even when we're learning about things like e-commerce or real estate or passive income, it's different speaking to us as business owners or service providers or coaches or whatever than it is speaking to someone who's maybe in that industry or, you know, has a different type of business. So I feel like there's a big gap that needs to be filled of courses like e-commerce, like real estate, like passive income, specifically related to people who maybe are in our position. And I am the same. I cannot find, I want to get into real estate so bad. I want to get into like Airbnb so bad, but it is really difficult to find someone who is like at that level that can teach you relevant to our business type. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. Like I think just investment in general, because you get to a certain place pace in your business where you have that extra income that you can start investing. Like even like crypto and like NFTs, oh my God. like all of that stuff goes way over my head. And like I'm just not about to fall for like those TikToks because like I just right. am like that has to be a scam. Like please tell me this. You sound real. like people in my comments. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> literally but like I feel like there's so much information out there so to have like even like somebody that's been in our shoes that have multiplied their income streams like having a container of that would be so cool literally and I like I invest in crypto and I have no idea what I'm doing no idea (laughs) I got to the point where I learned I learned how to actually do it and how to buy it but I'm like (laughs) So now what do I do? <laughs> I guess I'll just wait, but I have no strategy to it whatsoever. I'm just like, okay, here we go. I, I'm literally the exact same. My boss is like, stop buying it. Like, it's going to crash. <laughs> I'm like, it's fine. It's okay. You just have millions of dollars in Bitcoin and you don't even realize it. <laughs> I heard this story about this guy who was like, I think he bought Bitcoin like, 10 or 15 years ago or something because he was like I don't know this may be you know something someday and so he bought like I can't remember how it was like a very small amount and then like whenever Bitcoin exploded he was like oh I should check on that and he had like a million dollars sitting in there and he was like oh Um, yeah I was just on vacation and I met a guy he's like our age and I was like what do you do he's like I am a crypto investor and he found crypto eight years ago through a Reddit wow. thread and he was yeah. like, I have no idea, but this sounds cool. And he started mining it. And I'm like, you are literally, he never told me, but I knew like, I'm like, you are a multimillionaire at least. Yeah. Like you started mining crypto eight years ago and it's all Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is so interesting. But a lot of people just think that it's fake, right? Like they're right. like, like they're so skeptical, skeptical about it. And I'm like, no, there's actually people out there making serious money in it. I know. I'm trying to get this guy on season three who is like a Bitcoin and crypto expert because I'm oh like, my- I need to learn about this. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of other people do too. Your so. audience does too. Yeah. yeah. I think that's what's so cool is that once you're in the online space, like you're just exposed to so many different ways yeah. of generating money. Like 
honestly, I always think about it. I'm like, if for whatever reason, and this isn't going to happen, my business crumbles, like I still know that like, there's so many Mm -hmm. other avenues outside of like service based businesses that I could explore, which is so cool and exciting. I know even like day trading. It's yeah, day trade and work for like less than an hour a day and are millionaires. It's It's stupid. And like, it's so wild. I think it's so cool that the younger generation, like I'm a millennial, so Gen Z's. I, are you a Gen yeah. Z? Yeah. What like, year were you born? 93. What? I did not Nin- know you were that. 99. Not old. Yeah, I didn't 20. know you were freaking ancient. <laughs> <laughs> you're 20. four years older than me? I did. You're 29? No, I'm 28. I'm a December 30th. I'm December okay. 30th. So like, okay. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm um, January 97. So we're like, yeah. Okay. You're a little babe. I'm sure I knew that, but just didn't register it. Cause I always feel like we're the same age. I know. I think I, I feel like I'm the same age as everybody in the online space. But mm-hmm. what I was saying is like your generation and even younger than you, like 18, 19 year olds that are like making such incredible income online through like yeah. branded drop shipping, e-commerce, crypto yeah. trading, like um, social networking or marketing, whatever you want to call it. And I'm like, yeah. I just like all the power to them because like, I wish that I found this space five years ago. Cause like, I feel like my life would be so different. So I love that people are like, breaking that norm of like what success actually looks like not going to college and university for the sake of going to it for their parents like it's just really cool to see that we're actually in a world where like people are making decisions like that I know it's like it's so hard to whenever I see people like working at jobs like and not and having access to the internet because obviously there's people who maybe don't have those resources but whenever I see someone who just like maybe doesn't even believe in themselves enough to do something online I'm like ah like I just wish I could go into their body and (laughs) change that because it's yeah it's crazy and it's like it all seems so complicated like well bitcoin is very or crypto is very complicated but like even once you start learning about it like I remember I joined the reddit thread I'm like a reddit hoe i know this i get so much flack sometimes but i love reddit and i'm in the uh crypto reddit thread and like when i first joined i remember being like um i felt like they were speaking another language but like it's so rewarding once you kind of start understanding it and you were like oh i can actually apply this it's very similar to like the service provider space but there is so many opportunities but it is like once you start understanding one thing then it's like oh nfts are here and you're like i know (laughs) please so bad and when it's like when you see such quick rois of people like gaining so much more for their money you're like i have to do this i have to do this but like i've made bad crypto decisions i've invested in crypto experts that were absolutely Mm -hmm. not crypto experts and that like just took my money so i'm like i need to like stop falling for like that get rich quick scheme because like it is still work and understanding it but like anything like we literally have all the resources at our fingertips to learn anything we could be day traders if we wanted to be fucking day traders like that's the coolest thing yeah, you guys, anyone who's listening, you can, uh, me and Lo are crypto experts, so you can look at us. We just get, yeah. we're just like, yeah, you just buy Bitcoin and that's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> You're oh like, God. okay, thanks. 
Oh well, uh, thank you so much for being here. Do you want to let everyone know where they can find you online and what you're kind of offering in your business at the moment? Yeah, for sure. So you can hit me up at leave it to low underscore is my handle. My business name is actually getting changed to low Galloway. We're retiring leave it to low. So at the time oh, no, that I, live- I love leave it to low. So many people are sad about it. Like people will actually be like, yeah, do you know, leave it to low. Like they don't even I say, say that it. too. <laughs> That's what I say. Anytime I reference you, I'm like, yeah, leave it to low. <laughs> that is so funny, but she's retiring. So probably it will be low Galloway at the time, but you can hit me up there on Instagram or hit up my website at leave it to low.com. I am currently offering, I have my group coaching program, which is a six week program right now where I help new business owners who are looking to navigate the digital learning space to create a solid foundation of their outline, structure, curriculum, supplementary resources, and really understand what it takes to cultivate a well-rounded learning experience. And then aside from that, I do offer course clarity sessions. So if you are interested in creating a course or you have a course idea and you just want a strategist or an expert's second opinion, suggestions, feedbacks, that's a good option for you. And if you're ever in this level and you just want someone to build your course out I have a team of three and myself that do the full build out from ideation to execution so that is a little bit about my offers yeah yeah anyone who's a coach listening with a course do it me and Lo are literally about to hop on a call with Kaylin after this to have Lo get all up in my business and my course so I'm super excited for that Thank you for having me. What a great of course. Uh, Yeah, well, thank you for being here. Everyone go, go follow Low. message her about crypto. And <laughs> <laughs> we will talk to all of you in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Digital State of Mind podcast. I am your host, Jessica Hawks, and I am so happy to have you here. Follow along with us on Instagram at the Digital State of Mind so that we can stay connected with you and get your feedback on what you want to hear on the show. I know everyone says this, but we're serious, okay? <laughs> Talk to you next time.